can't get enough of football? Chance! Goal! Superhuman! Special, special goal! Incredible! Just incredible! Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Welcome to Football Insiders, the home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival for 2021. This isn't quite our first episode for 2021 because we did play a couple of sessions from the 2020 Football Writers Festival, but this is our first of our new sessions for Football Insiders. And to start off with, we've got a great guest in Alan Stadrich, head coach of the Central Coast Mariners, who of course, at the time of this recording, are sitting high on the top of the A-League ladder. Well, high would be probably a bit of a stretch and Alan would be the first to say that, I expect. But with four games played and three wins, they're sitting pretty on nine points at the moment. Without any further ado, let's have a chat with Stadge. So, Alan, welcome to the Football Insiders podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Benita. How are you? I'm doing very well and I I guess probably you are too. We're sitting on top of the A-League ladder at the moment. (laughs) <laughs> very early days, but yeah, look, we're, we're very happy with our start, but, but definitely not getting carried away with ourselves. No, four rounds in. I, I knew that would be your response, that you're not going to get carried away. How many rounds are there nowadays in the A-League? There's 26 rounds this year, obviously with COVID and, and all the restrictions around the borders, around the country and all the sort of, I guess, unpredictability. That might have to be adjusted as we move forward, but at the moment, it's still the full 26 rounds. Does that make it difficult for you as as the coach, try not really knowing who you're going to play next or where you're going to play or, or when? Yeah, I guess it's probably the hardest season for everyone, for, for coaches, for people who do periodization plans, but, but most importantly for the players. Sometimes you play two games in three days, sometimes three games in five or six days, and then other times you don't play for 15 or 16 days. So it's really difficult uh, for them and it's really difficult in terms of physical preparation, let alone technical and tactical, but look, everyone's in the same boat at the moment. For example, Perth are doing a road trip all around Melbourne uh, just to get as many games as they can. So look, everyone's got their own little little issues to deal with, but but all together we're all in the same boat. And, you know, the players and, and I guess all the A-League clubs have shown a, an amazing amount of resilience to get through to this point. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, and also finishing off last season as well. And you think about you know, teams such as your next, I think your next opponents, Wellington Phoenix, who can't even be home and have got a temporary home in Wollongong. Yeah, exactly right. Look, it's just a testament to everyone who's involved at the moment. And I think possibly in five or 10 years' time, we can look back at this period and everyone who's put in, put in the hard yard to keep the game going and it needs to be congratulated because we really have as a collective group, done everything we possibly can to keep the sport on, on its feet and keeping it going and maintaining a momentum and, and trying to get through this difficult period. And, and it's not been easy. And as I said, every every club's had its own issues, you know, from ACL campaigns and, and quarantines and, and travelling and then coming back to your own state and having to do a 14-day quarantine. So, look, it's just been difficult all around for everyone. But, but as I said, it's, it's a real testament to the resilience and and I guess love for the game that everyone has that, that we just want to see prosper. Yeah, and I can see a few sports scientist theses coming out of it as well <laughs> in terms of, you know, the issues you raised when you have a 15 or 16-day break. How do you, from a sports science perspective, from a coaching perspective, from a player perspective, how do you keep players motivated, fit, all of those sorts of things? So it should be an interesting period for a lot of people from that perspective too. 
this has never happened before and may never happen again. Like uh, World Cups and Olympics have, have their own sort of schedules, but you still know when you're playing. This is a, a unique period. And, and um, again, it's just, it, it really will be interesting to see how every different club deals with, with their own situation. So, yeah, wholeheartedly agree that it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting period to, to um, do an analysis on when it's all done. And on the A-League itself, from an organisational perspective, a few months ago we had the Football Writers' Festival in Manly in Sydney and two of the speakers were Danny Townsend, Sydney FC CEO, and Simon Pearce, Deputy Chair of Melbourne City. It's fair to say I think everybody sort of was there at that session and came away feeling extremely positive and optimistic about the A-League. How does that look from inside? Look, it's good to have two leaders and, and I guess, visionaries of, of the A-League uh, who, who have taken the reins now and are going to take the game forward. And I think both of those clubs have demonstrated in different guises over the, the recent history that, that they are the leaders of, of the A-League at the moment. You know, it's incumbent upon them to ensure that everyone comes along for the ride and, and knows the plan and sees the plan and, and we all live the plan. It's been a difficult period for Australian football, I guess, the last three, four, five years even um, during the whole governance war. But ultimately now the A-League owners own the keys to the house. You know, it's their product now, um, essentially, and, and it's up to them to ensure that the game survives and, and flourishes and grows. So, look, I've got a lot of hope in, in people like Danny and Simon and, and, you know, so many other good CEOs um, around the country and leaders around the country of all the clubs. So it really is incumbent upon them to, to bring this uh, plan to life. Yep. In terms of on the field this season, besides, you know, I think it's fair to say most people are delighted and surprised to see Central Coast Mariners doing so well because I think it's everyone's favourite second club at least. But in, from your perspective, what, what have you thought, A, about the newcomers, MacArthur, and also has there any particular team that you've been impressed with or been surprised by? Look, it's, uh, I agree with you and I've said it, you know, since I've been up on the Central Coast and regardless of whether I'm the coach or, or not, it's important that regional clubs survive and, and are successful within the A-League. Uh, we talk about expansion, we talk about growing the game, we talk about having, having a sport that's vibrant across the whole country and we really are the one sport that can be spread across the whole country and is played everywhere and, and has the high, highest participation rates all around the country. So... From that perspective, it's so important that Central Coast and Newcastle and, and any other regional centres who want to come on board have a chance of being successful. So, you know, that's really important. In terms of MacArthur, I think they've done an amazing job with recruitment to pick up the, the visa players they have, to pick up the, the Aussie boys who have been playing overseas and coming back to the A-League and, and adding so much experience and value like Federici and Milligan, for example, is has been impressive and, you know, the style of play that they're playing has also been very nice to watch. So, look, I think they've done a, a, a really good job as a startup. You know, results could be good or bad, but regardless, they're, they're putting a good foundation for the club to have a good successful campaign, not only now, but, but into the future as well. And and I know that they're planning that um, centre of excellence uh, for football down in Campbelltown as well, which, which leads a legacy and a resource there for all footballers. So, a lot of boxes ticked, I think, for MacArthur at the moment. As a league, on the whole, I think, you know, all the teams have been a little bit up and down and, and I guess that relates back to the earlier point about teams that are playing in short spaces of time and not knowing not knowing who you're playing and short turnarounds and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think, look, every team's won and lost already other than Wellington and, and really for me, Wellington have probably been one of the best teams to watch. Um, you know, I know they only sit on one point out of their three matches so far, but in my view, they probably could have and should have won all three. So... 
look, that that's a testament to the A League as well, how close it all is, and the quality of the competition. And you know, I know that that's always been a important important factor in developing the A League across the country. So look, at the moment, I think it's really tight, and and it's anyone's ball game. From a neutral fan perspective, it's a great way to be, actually. And I, I've mentioned this before. I've said this to Sandra Corica because we, we go to the same gym. But um, And I've said one of the problems with the A-League has been Sydney keeps winning everything. Um, and, of course, <laughs> I'll cop it now on top of Twitter for saying that from all the Sydney supporters, but I am a Sydney FC member. And I have actually said it to Danny Townsend as well. So there you go. Your own squad, it's, um, it's a great mix of people with, you know, not necessarily big names, but people with some great experience and, and some young players coming through. What's your commitment in, from that perspective in terms of being able to develop young talent and, and um, local talent in, in particular? We've got a lot of young boys now in the squad and who've been training with the squad from our NPL team. And, and the good part about that is that they're not only youngsters from all around Australia and Sydney, but a lot of youngsters from Central Coast who, who have now had the opportunity to train and play with the A-League team. So, you know, that's exactly the point about regional teams and, and growing the game, not only growing the game from a, from a participation and fan base, but also just growing the, the game from the, in terms of access, you know, where people have the access from the bottom right through to the top. And, you know, we have that. We've got 12 teams across the whole A-League and one of those is a New Zealand team. So, you know, sport has nearly a million participants, yet there's only 11 Australian clubs to, to reach the top in and in the W League, you know, it's even less. So so that that's probably my issue with the A-League and, and with our leagues as a whole. The more opportunities we have for players, for coaches, for staff, the more we're going to grow the game and the more opportunities there will be for everyone to love our game and, and share in the passion. So, you know, that's that's a, a, an essential component for me and and giving these young players an opportunity after that it's up to them you know we've had probably 10 to 15 players between the ages of of 16 17 and 23 training or playing with our squad so it's a really important aspect for us to give them the opportunity and then as i said up to them how far they take it that's really up to the level of hard work dedication and and skill that they bring to the table yeah you raised two issues there one that we hear quite often, particularly Graham Arnold only recently in terms of the number of games that are played, etc., and everyone having the capacity to play more games or the ability to play more games through a bigger competition. But there's also an issue you touched on in relation, which is directly impacts the Central Coast Mariners, and that is the W League and a lack of a women's team from the Central Coast Mariners. I am aware that Central Coast Mariners management are very keen for that to happen. How is that going? And I, I believe there's great support from the local council as well. How is that going and do you think it will happen in the short term? Well, look, the council's gone into administration <laughs> recently. Yeah, so I <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help at the moment. But, um, look, I, I, I even know from when I was still working at FFA that Central Coast put in several submissions to have a W League back up and running. Um, in the first couple of years of the W League when Central Coast were, were in that competition, the team was basically run by Football New South Wales, not by the Mariners, as were most of the teams back then run by the member federations, not by the actual clubs. But um, I know that in recent years, the Mariners did try and get a, a W League team up and running, and that was knocked back several times by FFA. So, you know, as to why, I, I wasn't privy to the details as to why they were knocked back. But, but for me, it's an important component of a club and being a, a club that's open to anyone and everyone who, who loves the game like we do. So, you know, I'm sure that it's going to be high up on the agenda for, for the short and medium term. Yeah, and I think one of the things that the new uh, APFA has said is that they want to see 
clubs, I mean, develop the whole club concept of having men's teams, women's teams, that sort of thing. So you would hope that Central Coast is able to be included in the W League in the, in the fairly foreseeable future. The other one around giving more young players more opportunity is, of course, the National Second Division. And recently, the AAFC put out a fairly detailed report on how that can happen. And they say it's both feasible and and is something that they would like to see happen by next year. What are your thoughts on the National Second Division? You said a key word there. I think feasibility is number one. And then the second one is sustainability. Can we keep this competition going for a long time? And then hopefully, in my view, it leads to the creation of, of a full pathway from from A-League to second division to, to MPL 1, 2, 3 and 4s where there's full promotion and relegation and we have an open pathway, not a closed shop. And, and I think that should be the, the goal for the game, to have that full, I guess, motivation to, to be a big club and to be a strong club and try and get to the top and have no, no false barriers that are preventing that from happening. But the more clubs we have that are professional and semi-professional, the more opportunities that everyone's going to get, as I mentioned earlier. So the bigger our game is, the more clubs, the more areas we can touch, the more regions that can be affected by professional and semi-professional clubs, the, the more chance we have of being, one, I guess, the number one sport in the country as we all would love it to be, and two, be more competitive on the international front. Uh, we're such a small country in terms of actual resources dedicated to football compared to every other country. So we really do punch above our weight in international football, I guess. So, you know, to give it to give ourselves any chance whatsoever of, of reaching that that ultimate, I guess, goal of being competitive at a World Cup in men's and women's football, we really need to to expand the game as much as we can. But obviously that's underscored by the feasibility and sustainability of the code. And, and I guess that's always been the question mark over the last 10, 20 and even 30 years of, of even the old National League. Yeah, it has. And, and that's one of the things that the AAFC report addresses is, is that they – and the, the club, the 30, I think it was 32 clubs or something who helped fund the report, they say in, in that report that they already spend, and I don't know the amounts off the top of my head, but say let's say approximately $850,000. And so having them play in a national competition would actually give them access to more funding, which would allow them to meet the $1.5 million, which they say is necessary to have a national second division. I guess the the real thing is for the whole football community to get around that report now that there is some hard data there and, and discuss it and look at the way forward rather than sort of picking it off and and, and uh, saying it can't happen. I'd rather dream and say how, how we make it happen rather than saying it can't happen. We all know we all know the difficulties in Australian football, the tyranny of distance and travel and and the expense that's involved around that, players taking time off work if they were if if, were, if it was required to spend two or three days away from from football in a semi sort of pro environment. So we all know the difficulties, but I, I'd rather look at the opportunities we now have, and and in the new digital age, how how we can fund that and promote the game, and and you know really have innovators around the game to to promote it and, and foster the growth. So. Look, I'm really hopeful that in five or six years' time we're going to have a flourishing A-League, expanded A-League, and hopefully a flourishing second division as well. Yeah, couldn't agree more. In terms of the, you know, you talked about international competitiveness and um, how we are minnows in football worldwide, but, of course, we're not when it comes to something like the Matildas, who, of course, you took to be number four in the world and are still despite the fact that hardly anyone's played any games, they're still sitting obviously in the top 10 and with the 2023 World Cup looming, as well as the perhaps the Olympic Games. What do you think 
are some of the issues that the women's game needs to address in order to make the most of that 2023 World Cup on home soil? It's an important question. It's a pivotal time, I guess, in the game for women's football that we've had such a good extensive network that was provided for women's football post the Sydney Olympics. And the legacy of of the Sydney Olympics was basically that women's football was treated as an equal within all the institute programs around the country. For example, at the Australian Institute of Sport, the New South Wales Institute of Sport, the Victorian Institute of Sport, and so on and so forth, all, all around the country. And, and women's football was really given a platform where, where players could develop in, in an equal way. The resources allocated to both boys and girls throughout those institutes was, was totally equal. And I guess you know, I'm going to throw a number out there without having done exact research on it, but probably between 70 and 90% of our current Matildas in, in some way came through those systems. And on top of that, the W League was formed in, in 2008 and, and gave players that extra little bit of a platform to, to perform, albeit in a short space of time, you know, that three or four month window where, where the competition actually is played in. But but apart from that three or four month window, the other eight or nine months a year, they were in full-time programs with all the full allocation of, of sports science, nutrition, full-time coaching, um, and really as professional environment as any boy could attain at a similar age. So when that disappeared in 2012, uh, we lost we lost a massive chunk of, of expertise and we lost a massive chunk of, of resources that were dedicated to providing, I, I guess, the essential requirements for, for players to develop. And, and it went back to member federations who have done a good job, but they just don't have the resources that, that all the institutes had. And for me, it was always a worry of, of the underpinning programs. Could they provide the amount of, of training and full-time coaching to, to give these players the opportunity to reach the level that those players had? And in my view, in the last five or six years, that probably hasn't happened. Despite the growth of the sport, despite the growth of the participation base, the players just haven't been given the same full-time opportunities that the current Matildas had when they were that age. So, you know, just looking forward, I don't want the 2023 World Cup to be the pinnacle of the sport. It should be the beginning of the new era of women's football. It should be the point where we grow, where we grow further and really I guess, cement our position as the number one sport for females in this country. I don't want it to be the, the point where we reach our highest ever point and then 10 years later we're, we're wallowing around number 20 or 30 in the world and, and haven't capitalised on the moment. And, and the pathway and the infrastructure around the development is, for me, number one. The promotion of the sport, the acceptance of the sport at all levels, from National Federation to Member Federation to a-League clubs to NPL clubs is, is essential as well. So, look, it's not just one part, but the whole jigsaw package really has to be, you know, jigsaw of, of the Australian, I guess, ecosystem has to be really fully, you know, investigated to make sure we capitalise on the moment and give it give it a legacy that's going to last for a long time, not just, just for that three weeks of the tournament. The same issues apply for the men as well, yeah, the boys and men as well, isn't it, in terms of taking away those institutes and the, the centres of excellence and, and putting it into the state federations and, and clubs? They did for a small bit, but the thing that happened in boys' football that hasn't happened in women's football is the A-League clubs took ownership of the pathway. So Sydney FC, for example, are bearing the fruits of their program. Wanderers are, and look, I've been pretty, not, not I haven't been involved in any of those programs, but I've been able to observe both of their programs close up and, and see the amount of players that they're actually starting to produce and, and that and that conveyability is really starting to come out now. We're seeing some of those kids on the bench now for Sydney moving into the first team or being sold overseas. The same thing can be said for Wanderers and, and even for Mariners. You know, a lot of the kids that are in my team come through our actual youth program. So 
you know, I know on this eastern seaboard where I've been able to observe and watch these players come through these programs, they're, they're actually bearing fruit. And the A-League at the moment is a testament, you know, to those programs being put in place. And, you know, I don't really know what's happened in the other states with their programs, but just looking at the young players coming through at Perth and Adelaide and even Brisbane and the Melbourne clubs, you, you could also say that they've been fairly strong. These players wouldn't be able to come in and play A-League if they didn't have good, good programs underneath. So I actually, I actually believe that in the boys' space, in the last four or five years, we've done a much better job in, in, in the programs and the capacity to support the players than we have in the girls' programs. Do you, do you find, is there a difference? I, I know this is a question people have asked you before, and it, but it's one that people wonder. That, and, and forgetting all the circumstances of your departure from the Matildas to the extent that we can put that aside, is there a difference between coaching men and coaching women at that elite level? Look, I've had that question asked. Many, many times. times and the more the more that I've coached both and I have coached boys for 10 or 15 years as well you know especially between the ages I guess 13 and 18 up until this recent experience so I had a had a fairly lengthy stint at, at Hill Sports High School uh, for 10 or 12 years and and then coaching girls at the same time at a similar age and and then having obviously coached higher up in the girls for a longer period of time and now the last two years in the A-League with the men the more I've been involved in football and the wider my experiences are, the more I've come to the conclusion that every individual is unique and I don't think gender is the biggest thing that differentiates what makes up a person. There are so many variables that go into making up each individual human being, let alone each individual footballer. And then when you get a collection of those 15, every individual, every club and every team is so unique. So to say that there are commonalities across, you know, for example, Central Coast versus Sydney in the A-League, they're just totally different clubs with different cultures, with different sets of behaviours, with different histories uh, that have led to, you know, that culture evolving at, at a certain point in time. And then when you further, I guess, extrapolate that to women's football versus men's football, looking at each different country would be a massive difference. Looking at each different club team would be a massive difference. Looking at each different age group would be a massive difference. So there are so many variables that go into making each particular team at each particular point in time. So I think it's incumbent upon the coach and the leaders of that team and that club to realise the unique nature of that team rather than saying this is a boys team and this works all the time or this is a girls team and that works all the time. And in saying all that, footballers are footballers. And the higher up you go, in terms of level of talent and hard work and dedication and sacrifice that they've had to put in to get to the highest levels, I guess the more that professional athletes are the same, they have similar characteristics in hunger and desire and determination and resilience and mental toughness that got them to that point. So, look, I, I see a lot of commonalities across those traits that brought those people to the highest levels. And I guess that's the, the area where there's a lot of similarities and then the uniqueness is obviously the individuals that come into each environment. That's probably a long answer, but that's... <laughs> it's an incredibly thoughtful answer. It, I think it was really great. One other observation I would make about elite sports people, and, and most of the ones I've met are, um, are males, and obviously from being team manager at the Socceroos, is also I think the better they are, the more generous they are about other players' talents. Maybe that's an individual thing again, but certainly... I have heard players talk about other players, including their teammates, and they are 
you know, a quite objective and honest. It's almost like a almost like a fan speaking about a, a specific player's particular skill set or talents that the other player might not have. And maybe, it, as you said, it could be an individual thing. <laughs> I may have just been lucky with the individuals I've struck. <laughs> definitely, I, I definitely think the higher up you get, and and all those qualities that I just mentioned, I'm not sure if I mentioned coachable. I think the more coachable that athlete is, the more likely they are to succeed. And I guess one part of that coachability is recognizing other people's talents because the know-it-alls have a limited, you know, they obviously have a limited cap on on how much further they're going to progress. They don't want to take in as much information. They don't want to learn from themselves or from others, other players or other coaches. So they usually have a cap on on their potential and their growth. And, And the ones who make it to the highest levels usually don't have that attitude. Yeah. And they can be quite humble too, a lot of them. Again, that might be an individual thing <laughs> rather than trying to say it about all of them. We, we can have so many stereotypes about different people, but you could even go to positions within a game of football. What's the stereotype and personality type of a striker versus a midfielder versus a defender? Uh, the striker's tendencies are usually more selfish and, and hungry and, and ego-driven and midfielders are usually the team workers and, and defenders do all the hard work trying to save a team. But just stereotypes. It doesn't mean that every individual falls into that bracket and, and nor should they. No. So, of course, being a coach is balancing all of those things as well as getting the best out of the team as well as getting the team prepared for a particular game. Definitely. That's the, that's the most difficult part. It doesn't matter whether you're winning or losing. There's always there's always issues. There's always issues on the field and there's always issues off the field. And, and the bigger the numbers within the group, the, the more pressures I guess, a, a professional sport, the, the more problems there are to deal with that are, that are acute. And, you know, learning learning how to solve those problems and learning how to deal with, with managing those issues and, and learning how to, I guess, even reflect on yourself on how you've dealt with issues in the past, I think they're all, all the things that are important in, in maintaining a successful sporting environment and, and any work environment for that matter. Yeah. Absolutely. Alan, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have this 30 minutes or so with you and uh, we wish you all the best for the rest of the A-League season and and hope to continue to see Central Coast Mariners up the top there. Good idea. Pleasure. Thanks, Benita. Thank you again to Alan Stadjic for being our special guest this week. We look forward to welcoming you back next week as we talk to another football insider about what their views are and what's going on in football at the moment and they're part of the football world. If you're looking for a really good football book, go to fairplaypublishing.com.au. We've not only got some great titles on site now, but some really terrific books coming out during 2021, and we look forward to talking more about those as the year goes by. Until next week, stay safe, keep well, and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers' Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.